good to see you today. And I just want to take a moment to let you know how thankful I am that the songs that we sing are rich in the gospel. Um, these are songs that are prayed over and carefully chosen and put together and arranged. And so our goal in singing these songs is not just to sing pretty songs that would just kind of lift us along and that we would get caught up in emotion. Although nothing wrong with getting caught up in emotion when you're singing truth. But it's, we're not, Clint's not getting uh, his team together and, and picking out songs just to have a feel-good moment. But everything that we just sing, it flows right into what we're about to study in Psalm chapter 2. And so no, basically you have just sang the message you just lifted it up to the Lord. And in fact, on Friday, I text Clint, and I said, man, are we singing All I Have is Christ? If we are, man, I just did a fist pump in the air because I'm like, that's it. That, that is, that's what we're looking at today. So I hope that you, along with me, appreciate the depth of what we sing and understand it's not we're just trying to be deep to be deep. We, we want to sing truth. Absolutely want to sing truth. I'm grateful for this time of singing together. Now we come to the time in the Word, which is continual worship. Worship hasn't stopped. Worship continues through the preaching of the Word. And so we're in Psalm chapter 2. If you want to go ahead and turn there, it's in the middle of your Bible. You may need to flip to the left or right to find it once you get to the middle. Um, If you do not have a Bible, please look in front of you. There's a pew Bible, and you grab that, and you can turn to page 448. And there you will find Psalm chapter 2. And we're going to look at all of Psalm chapter 2 today. And as we looked last week at Psalm chapter 1, concluded that David would be the author of Psalm chapter 1. Now, many of the Psalms are um, separated at different points in the writer's life. Uh, Many of them are David, um, but they're separated out different events. But after reading Psalm chapter 1 and looking at Psalm chapter 2, it's almost like the two are joined together. They just have one flow to it, which I think gives an even stronger argument that David would be the author of Psalm chapter 1. And then when you get to Psalm chapter 2, I think we're given the confirmation that David is the author when we look to Acts chapter 4, and Peter quotes uh, this psalm being from David. So I think that's a pretty good affirmation, wouldn't you think? The Holy Spirit would affirm that. And so we are once again reading a psalm from David, and the question that we're asking today, is God intimidated by the wicked? Because wickedness is all around us. Darkness is all around us. So how does God feel about that? Because many times we are intimidated. Let's just be truthful. When we encounter someone who is pretty sharp-tongued, they they know Scripture too, and they know how to take Scripture and and pit it against us, and we don't know how to respond, we can get intimidated. Uh, We can grow quiet. we um, We can draw away. We can walk away defeated, and we can feel intimidated. In fact, when we see all types of evil around us, we can even ask the question, what's going on? Like, how, why is all this happening? Where, where is God intervening in all of this? But the question we're asking in the midst of this, is God intimidated by the wicked? So we'll read Psalm chapter 2 as we go along. Okay, we'll read a little bit, we'll break it down, we'll read a little bit more, we'll we'll break it down, and and that will be our flow today. So read with me Psalm chapter 2, starting in verse 1. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords 
from us. So in verse 1, we see this word, why. Why do the nations rage? And so is this really a question of why the nations rage and people's plot in vain, or is it more of a question of why would you ever? See the difference? Why or why would you ever? And I'm going to say on the front end of this, I think it's both. Okay? It's a question of why. why. Why would you do this? But then why would you ever do this? And so let me further explain the why. In Psalm chapter 1, verse 1, in the very beginning here that we looked at last week, we see that blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. And it's here that we find our answer to the why of Psalm chapter 2, verse 1. We look to Psalm chapter 1, verse 1, and we see why. Man is on a downward spiral, right? He's walking in the counsel of the wicked, he's standing in the way of sinners, and he's seating, or sit, he sits at the seat of scoffers. And so it's this downward spiral of sin, in which all of us are well acquainted with in the room. We understand sin's downward spiral, which answers the question of why man would plot in vain, and why they would rage against God. Because sin causes man to rage against God. Sin causes man to plot in vain. This word plot is the same word that we saw in Psalm chapter 1 when we saw meditate. It's the same Hebrew word. So we see meditate in Psalm 1, and then in Psalm 2 we see plot. Same word. So in Psalm 1, it is the righteous man who meditates on the word of God. So he's constantly murmuring. He's constantly thinking. He's constantly going through the law, the the instruction of the Lord. But then, when we look in Psalm chapter 2, we see what the wicked man is doing. He is constantly meditating. He is constantly murmuring. He's constantly planning against God. It's what wicked kings do. It's what evil nations do. That's what the sinner does against God. The heart beats against God. Really, the heart is dead towards God is the best way to say it. So in vain, he plots, he meditates. And so it means it's a waste. So it's a a wasted life. It's a wasted attempt to fight against God, to think that you would ever defeat God's ultimate plan. It's an intentional plot against God. And it's continually on the mind of the sinner. So what does this type of meditation produce? So if this is in the heart of man, this wickedness, what does it produce? It produces a rebellion against God. And we speak of this often, but it's it's important that we often speak of the rebellion that man has against God. And that's what we see here in chapter 2. All this meditation, all this plotting in vain, it's in rebellion. It's a response of what's in man's heart against God. Psalm 2, verse 2, the kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together. So look at this. There's a migration of evil rulers coming together, having something in common. What does evil man, what does sinful man have in common? That they want to go against God. That's what they find in common. And all their schemes, all their plans, and all their livelihood, and everything they do, everything is against God, not, not for God which is a great offense to the holy God who created them, who made them for his glory. And yet man is saying, no, no. 
It's not enough that one man would stand against God, but that many would draw together. And think about that. When we look even in our country at the growing number of people who are openly speaking out against the things that God has created and made good. And we look at the crowds and we go, whoa, what, what do we do about this? There are growing numbers, that, of, growing numbers of hostility against God. Understand this, there have always been massive numbers of people who have been hostile towards God. What we're seeing in our day of time are people who are being more vocal, more bold, downward spiral in this sin. And so with that, they migrate together. And here in Psalm chapter 2, we see that kings of the earth were migrating together against his anointed, against the Lord. So the doctrinal answer to this of why we have just answered, because man is sinful. That's why. That's why he's doing this. It is his DNA, all right? But why would you ever? That's a different way of asking this question. Why would you ever, if God is so almighty and powerful, and even these kings have seen God move in miraculous ways, why would you ever go against him? Why would you pit yourself against him? You are going to lose and lose back. The rebellion is in man's heart already, and here is why it leads them to burst the bonds apart and cast away the cords from us. Going after those who love the Lord. This, this is why. You ready? Because their eyes have deceived them. When the wicked looks around, they think that they are winning the rebellion. Evil man thinks that he is beating God. It could be because of the persecuted church. It's because man's agenda is on the rise against God. And man thinks he's winning. When you sit in that cubicle beside the next person who is lost in their sin, and you share with them Christ, and they don't know Christ, or they've heard of Christ, but they don't want to follow Christ, they don't think they need Christ, they think that they're winning without Christ. When you see evil rulers rise up in empires and and do ridiculous things. They think that they're winning. I was having a good conversation with my buddy Jim Canals this week, and we were talking about if truth is relevant, whatever you think truth is, and whatever you think truth is, then we must believe that and accept that. Then what about a man like Hitler, who believed that, you know, hey, the truth is, I think we should slaughter millions of people because they're not like us. I mean, would you look to Hitler and say, well, hey, man, if you think that's relevant, you think that's cool, yeah, that's truth, man, we have to accept that. No. That's a wicked man against a holy God. Why? Because he looked at the landscape and he thought he could win, that he could be his own God. And yet we do this on a, on a minor scale many times in our lives. So they actually think that they're winning. That's why. They pit themselves against God. That's why they plot in this rebellion. They think that man is stronger than God, that man doesn't need God. So this God of the Jews, this God over the church, must not exist. So what they do is they try to burst away the the bonds here, and they try to cast away the cords, the attachment that we have to the Lord. They seek to destroy 
that. That is man's attempt. Understand that when man is thriving in sin, it's to stop all of those who are thriving in Christ. And so now let's tear them apart, is their attitude. So let's just have a point of clarity here. When we're looking at these verses, have a better understanding. These first three verses, talking about the anointed, is not speaking of David. Okay? It's anointed. It's not speaking of Solomon or any other earthly king to follow. And we have to really examine when we look at Psalms, because sometimes we're, we're seeing David coming in the line of Christ, and it's foreshadowing, but David cannot fit this shadow. David cannot be this man. Solomon cannot be this man. They cannot uphold what Psalm chapter 2 speaks of, the anointed. No man can fit that role except Christ Jesus. And so when we're talking about the anointed, we are looking at Jesus Christ. In fact, the word anointed in the Hebrew means Messiah. So David's not the Messiah. Solomon is not the Messiah, nor any other king that would come in that line, except Jesus Christ. He is the Messiah. And when you then look at it, also it means in the Greek, the word Christ is the Christ. So this is a Messianic psalm, once again pointing to the reign of Christ Jesus. And the words of this psalm are just simply too big for any other king, as one commentary puts it. So David writes this psalm well over 1,000 years before Christ comes to earth. Well over a thousand years before Christ comes, this is what David is writing. And we see that the same problem has existed from the very beginning. From the very beginning, coming from Adam has been this rebellion against God. Let me remind you once again, because as I said a few weeks ago, we, we blame a lot of our rebellion because of the environment that we're brought up in. We like to blame our home situation, our neighborhood, our schools, whatever it may be, some past relationship. You want to blame it on that ex or whatever it may be, okay? But listen, Dave, or uh, uh, who were the first two people? Uh, Adam and Eve? Yes, there we go. All right, Adam and Eve, they were in a perfect environment, and they rebelled against God. So the blame is done with. All of us are like Adam and Eve. We would have failed, Right? And so it's been from the very beginning, man's rebellion against God. And when it escalates, it's because man thinks he is bigger than God. Isn't that the truth? This uprising, this rebellion, is because man thinks he doesn't need God. Or that he is himself a God. Isn't that what Adam and Eve wanted? They too wanted to be gods. Knowing good and evil, they fed into the lie. There's only one God. So David experienced this rebellion in the first century. And we too experienced this rebellion today. But even the early church experienced this. Acts chapter 4, if you want to flip over there in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and then Acts. Uh, Acts chapter 4, starting in verse 23. Peter and John have just been put in prison because they healed a crippled man. And so there's evidence of the power of Christ existing in them. And what does man do? They, they don't know what to do, so they, they put him behind bars. They want to keep Jesus quiet. They thought they killed him on the cross. No, he rose from the grave. And now he's living in man. And he's see, they're seeing this power of Christ and, and Peter and John, the same Peter who denied Christ three times, who ran away, scared little boy but yet was restored by Jesus Christ. 
And then here in verse, in chapter 4, they are released. And in fact, in verse 16, the evil rulers even admit, they say, we cannot deny it. We can't deny what we've seen. But we just, just get them out of here. We're, we're seeing miracles. They're saying this is Christ and we're seeing a change, but we don't want to believe it. They didn't want to believe it. And so, Acts chapter 4, 23 through 28 When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, this is the church together, which had grown to over 5,000 in a short amount of time. Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. Oh, listen to that. Listen to that. Go back. Okay, so they just came out of prison and they're released. Who do they give glory and praise to? God, and listen how they refer to him. Sovereign Lord, you're above all things. Do you see their mindset? That God is huge. He's over this circumstance. He's over all things. Sovereign Lord who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Here it is. Here's how we know that David was the author of Psalm 2. Why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. Now listen to them. Exegete and break this down of how this is working out. Verse 27, for truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus. So in the city, they gathered together. They migrated together. Remember how we said the evil would migrate together. They migrated together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. This was God's plan take place before he ever said, let there be light, where there was ever a beginning of earth. This was his plan. An evil man carried out their their will against Christ underneath the power of sin. So David experienced this rebellion. The first century church experienced this rebellion. And the 21st century church experiences this rebellion today. Every generation has experienced the rebellion whether it's outright hatred and persecution or apathy and ignorance. And let's just go with the ignorance real quick. How about our store, Target? How many of you like shopping at Target? Okay, how many more of you would have raised your hand before last week? All right. Target comes out and says, yeah, we have this bathroom situation. And here's how ridiculous this is, guys. I mean, obviously, you can look at me, and I am a man. Praise God. Praise God. I'm a man. I've, I have been a man ever since he created me in the womb. His plan was to create me. He fashioned me in the womb. But if man doesn't even believe that that's a true being in the womb, then why should we, we be surprised that man is confused about the being once he comes out of the womb? And so, you can go to your local target today. And you can walk into the local Target, men, and you can pull a Shania Twain and say, man, I feel like a woman. And you can walk right into the ladies' bathroom. And according to the new policy, 
There's nothing that can be said about that because your defense is, I just feel like a woman today. Feel a little sassy. Feel like this is where I want to be. This is ridiculous, isn't it? So what is God doing when when all of this is happening, what do we do? Do we, do we boycott Target? Are you waiting for me to say that? I'm not, not going to say that. No. I think we have a, a great opportunity to walk into Target and talk to the people and go, do you, do you believe this? Do you really believe this? Like, tell me why you would believe this. I think there's a great opportunity for evangelism, church. Too often we're too quick to want to boycott. Now, some don't want to leave Target because they like the perks of Target. That's a different story. All right, but. What is God doing right now? Is he looking at this situation, this small situation, compared to what we're looking at with mass persecution that's going on in the Middle East and different places? What is God doing? Is God going, oh, no. Man, I, I created you to be a man, but you want to be a woman. Well, okay, man. Go be a woman. Go, girl. Is that what he's doing? No. No, that's not what God's doing. What does man do in the response to man's rebellion? Or what does God do in the response to man's rebellion? Verse 4 of Psalm chapter 2. He who sits in the heavens laughs. Laughs. Does God think this is funny? No. No. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. This is the only place mentioned throughout the Bible where God laughs. This is the only place. And understanding that God is spirit, God the Father is spirit, so he's not laughing in the sense that we understand laughter, but it's put in human terms so we can understand his response to man's rebellion. He laughs. Do you really think you're defeating me? Do you really think you're destroying my plan? Do you really think because, America, you're having a a big issue on a man being a man and a woman being a woman and who should use the right? Do you think that I'm lost for words here? Man's rebellion's been going on for a long time here on earth from the very beginning. And God laughs. His response is, you small kings are no match for my son, the great king of kings and lord of lords. That's his response. He says, I will set my king on Zion. This was the place where the physical temple was set, but it's also pointing to the heavenly realities only being that Jesus Christ. So I love how James Johnston puts this. He says, All the power in the world will not stop God's word. Pharaoh tried to destroy the Israelites, but he ended up caring for Moses and educating him in his own palace. Haman plotted to destroy the Jews, but he was hung on the gallows he built for another. The leaders of Israel put Jesus to death and thought they had destroyed him. Instead, God used the cross to triumph over sin and save his people. Paul and Silas were beaten and thrown in jail. Through their suffering, the jailer was saved. The emperor, Diocletian, set up pillars against or proclaiming victory over Christ. But seven years later, Constantine came to the throne and Christianity became the official religion of the Roman Empire. 
So as a man comes against God, he is defeated every time. And the true king, the king of kings, is Jesus Christ, our Lord. He went to the cross because this was the Father's plan. He was not defeated by man. No, he was put to death by his Father, taking on our sins, church, that we could have hope for eternal life. And he rose from the grave in victory. And he inherits. He has the heritage of the nations. They are his. So whatever the kings think they own, they're sadly mistaken. Christ owns it all. And this is our confidence, church, that Christ owns it all. And even today, we we should not be intimidated. Because if God's not intimidated, why are we intimidated? Why are we quiet? Why are we scared? Why are we frightened? Be bold, church. Don't be intimidated. Because God is not intimidated. I last week pointed out the insanity of God. Is Amy Pope in here this morning? I saw her earlier. But yeah, there she is. You know, you put that book in my hand, and, and God's been doing a great work in my heart, so thank you. Praise God for you. Um, I want to read one more part of this, and some of you got this book this past week, and some of you need to get it this week, okay? The Insanity of God by Nip Ripkin. There it is, all right? Google it. Amazon it. Lifeway. Okay. This is one excerpt from there of how church uh, leaders in the underground church, how they respond to persecution. This is going on today. This is, this is their response. So we'll look at Target, this whole thing where we're going, huh, what do we do? All right, Target to what's going on in China. All right, listen to their response. When the police show up, the security police regularly harass a believer who owns the property where a house church meets. The police say, you have got to stop these meetings. If you do not stop these meetings, we will confiscate your home and we will throw you out into the street. Then the property owner will probably respond, do you want my house? Do you want my farm? Well, if you do, then you need to talk to Jesus because I gave this property to him. The security police will not know what to make of that answer. So they will say, we do not have any way to get to Jesus, but we can certainly get to you. When we take your property, you and your family, you will have nowhere to live. And the house church believers will declare, then we will be free to trust God for shelter, as well as for our daily bread. If you keep this up, we will beat you, the persecutors will tell them. Then we will be free to trust Jesus for healing, the believers will respond. And then we will put you in prison, the police will threaten. By now, the believer's response is almost predictable. Then we will be free to preach the good news of Jesus to the captives to set them free. We will be free to plant churches in prison. If you try to do that, we will kill you. The frustrated authorities will vow. And with utter consistency, the house church believers will reply, then we will be free to go to heaven. And be with Jesus forever. Luke chapter 12, verses 4 and 5. I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body. 
and after that have nothing more that they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Church, fear God. Honor God. Glorify God. Do not fear man. What is the worst that man can do to you? He can kill you. But then after he kills you, he doesn't know what else to do with you. He has no more power. God did not give you an earthly body to last forever. He did not. But yet so many times we we live our lives as if that is the case. We should take care of our bodies. We should be good stewards of our bodies because our bodies are the vessel in which the gospel goes through to reach others. But God did give you something that lasts forever, and that is your soul. And when you look deep into the eyes of a man or a woman and you hear them speak and you hear them proclaim of Christ, that is not of the physical, that is of the spiritual. He's given you a soul that will last forever. So the question is, will your soul last forever in eternity with God? Or will your soul last forever in eternity in the lake of fire? When it is joined together with your old body and cast into the lake of fire. Is that where you will be. Man can't kill your soul. He can kill your body. But he cannot kill your soul. Because Christ has risen. Christ reigns. And Christ will not be defeated. So I don't want you to hear this message today and go, yes, Christ reigns. We're safe. Your soul is safe. Your body may not be. But hey, We'll see Jesus. Christ's follower, do not fear those in rebellion. God is not intimidated by them. They can take your body, but what more can they do? But to those who are in the rebellion, you have much to fear. If this is true, and I believe it with all of my heart, I live my life based on it. If this is true, those in the rebellion have much to fear much to fear. Shouldn't be able to sleep at night knowing that this is true. Verse 7 of Psalm chapter 2. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Understand that Jesus is the only begotten of the Father. Verse 8. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession and you shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Church, Jesus will bring this rebellion to an end. Jesus brings the rebellion to an end. Not you, not me. Jesus brings it to an end. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. In Scripture, kings have been called sons. We are called sons of God, but there is only one begotten son, that being Christ Jesus. And the nations are his inheritance. They're to the ends of the earth, his possession. In Solomon's day, this is in Solomon's day, which came right after David, the territory in which Israel covered, they possessed the most land they've ever possessed before. They covered from the Euphrates River in the northeast all the way to the border of Egypt in the southwest. So it was not a literal ends of the earth, but for Christ Jesus, it is literal. 
He will take it all. And he will make it new. Understand, he will make it new. He will take all that is corrupt and he will make it new. We will reign with him forever. This is your inheritance too, Christian. Your inheritance is not here. Your inheritance is the forever with Christ and he will restore, he will make new. It is his possession. So when man stands against Christ and he thinks he's winning, remind him that it is Christ's possession. That which he thinks he owns is Christ's possession. And broken with the rod of iron and dashed into the pieces of clay. This is speaking of the wicked. And this is not a brokenness that leads to salvation. Not at this time. No, this brokenness leads to eternal damnation. That's the brokenness here. So then in verse 10, Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Verse 11, Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. So this is a call to repentance. So what do we do to the wicked? Do we, do we hate them? Do we spite them back? Do we kill them? No. As we go to share the gospel, we proclaim repentance. Just as Jonah went into Nineveh and said, repent. We are to repent. Even when we don't think they'll repent, we say repent. Repent, O kings. Be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. So we tell them before you are broken by his wrath, repent and be saved through his grace. One commentary says the world has not set itself against the idea of God in general. In fact, people around the world are usually religious. By nature, though, we are against the God who has revealed himself in Jesus Christ. Human beings across the globe are offended by the God of the Bible and rage against him. So people may believe in God, but when it comes to Jesus Christ, your conversations when you share the gospel need to get to Jesus Christ. Do not walk away and they say, hey, I believe God, and you go, oh, good, they believe God. Yeah, we can walk away here. Yeah, you believe good, I believe God. Okay, kind of see some different ways to God. Okay, cool, I'm not going to step on that. I'm not going to offend or anything. No, we say Jesus Christ. What do you believe about Jesus? Because it's to Jesus Christ we come and we repent and we submit to him. We kiss the son, meaning submission to the son, loyalty and allegiance to Jesus Christ. That is our allegiance. Meaning to accept him in all offices, to yield our wills to his and obey his laws, however made known to us, William Plummer writes, to accept him in all offices, prophet, priest, and king, everything about Jesus Christ, not just picking and choosing what you want of Christ, but who Christ proclaims himself to be. He is the one on Zion's hill. William Plummer continues, he says, we must love Christ or terribly perish. If Christ is not precious to us, it is because we are unbelievers. Is Christ precious 
to you. There will be kings. There have been kings. And there are kings today. Rulers, authorities that rise up against God, that hate the name of Christ Jesus and will kill anybody who proclaims of him. This is a reality. And here, for your upbringing, church, and my upbringing, if you've lived in the United States, you have lived in a time of peace. What will we do with our freedom before it becomes persecution? Does it take full-on persecution for you to see Jesus Christ as precious? The Roman rulers tried to kill the name of Jesus. Let's find out how successful they were in that. Plummer writes this of 30 Roman rulers. Here is the end of one of the greatest plots ever formed against God's chosen. Of 30 Roman emperors, governors of provinces, and others high in office who distinguished themselves by their zeal and bitterness in persecuting the early Christians. Here's what happened. One became speedily deranged after some atrocious cruelty. One was slain by his own son. One became blind. The eyes of one started out of its head. One was drowned. One was strangled. One died in a miserable captivity. One fell dead in a manner that will not bear recital. One died of so loathsome a disease that several of his physicians were put to death because they could not abide the stench that filled his room. Two committed suicide. A third attempted it but had to call for help to finish the work. Five were assassinated by their own people or servants. Five others died the most miserable and excruciating deaths, several of them having an untold complication of diseases. And eight were killed in battle or after being taken prisoners. Among these was Julian the Apostate. In the days of his prosperity, he is said to have pointed his dagger to heaven, defying the Son of God, whom he commonly called the Galilean. But when he was wounded in battle, he saw that all was over with him, and he gathered up his clotted blood, and he threw it into the air, exclaiming, Thou hast conquered, O thou Galilean. Voltaire has told us of the agonies of Charles IX of France, who drove the blood through the pores of the skin of that miserable monarch after his casualties and treachery to the Huguenots. Thirty Roman rulers who tried to stop God, faced miserable death. But the worst is yet to come. Because he laughs in his wrath towards them. And he will not hold back his wrath to these rulers of the world who tried to stop him. And yet he reigns supreme. Do you want his refuge or his wrath?
You want his refuge. You do not want his wrath. Kiss the son. Do not curse the son. Martin Luther said this, everyone who is a sound Christian, especially if he teaches the word of Christ, must suffer his Herod, his Pilate, his Jews and heathens who rage against him to speak much in vain, to lift themselves up and take counsel against him. And I encourage you today, Christian, do not be intimidated by them because God is not intimidated. Are you taking refuge in Christ Jesus, his anointed? There are many who rise up against him and do not for one minute believe that they are going to be victorious in their attempts, their plots, their plans. They will meet God's wrath. You do not want to meet the wrath of God. It is eternal. He will not let up, and he is just in displaying this wrath to all who deny his son, Jesus Christ. Are you a follower of Jesus Christ today? If you are, is Jesus precious to you? Do not be intimidated. Go forth with the good news of Jesus Christ. If you are not a follower of Jesus Christ today, I plead with you. I stand before you today, and I ask you to repent and follow Jesus and trust how he will teach you and how he will lead you in the word. He will. As a follower of Jesus Christ for over 20 years, I have learned so much and I'm learning so much more. And many of you can bear this testimony. I knew very little coming to Christ except that I had offended a holy God. And that my only hope was to trust in the one who had not offended the holy God, but yet took on our sin and went to the cross for me, rose from the grave so I could have life, so I could enjoy God forever. I've been growing in this good news for 20 years. Are you growing in this good news, Christian? To those who are not Christians today, will you repent? Will you make the good confession today? Jesus, you are Lord, I trust you. What you have done, I follow you. Will you make that good confession today? You can take, um, if that is heavy upon your heart right now, bow your head. Call upon the Lord. I'm not going to give you any prayer to recite after me. not going to do that. No, if that's on your heart, you respond right now in repentance. Anywhere you are, respond in repentance. If this has already been heavy on your heart, you want to check on that connection card. Hey, I want to know more about following Christ, or I want to talk to you about following Christ. You just scratch it out and say, today I'm following Christ. Put that in the offering plate as it comes by. I want to follow up with you. Our staff, we want to follow up with you. If you want to grow in Christ, we encourage you to get connected to a community group. Come to Perimeter Basics. It's a good opportunity for you to learn more about how we function as the local church. You check that off, put it in the offering plate as it comes by. But I'm going to be standing right in the back, and we're going to have pastors up here, and we're going to have some more staff in the back. You, in the time that we sing in just a moment, if you want to follow Christ, or you are now following Christ, if you've made the good confession where you're seated, or you made the good confession this week, or you want to make the good confession, come talk to us. You just tell the people, excuse me, I'm I'm coming out. I want to go talk to somebody. We're making ourselves available. We want to talk to you. This is the conversation we want to have above all others today. Will you come meet with us? Let's pray, and we'll continue to worship. Father, we thank you that you are not intimidated. Because you are not intimidated, we are not intimidated. Many rise up against you. We, 
who are followers of Christ, were against you. And although we were against you, you called us to yourself. You loved us first. We thank you for that. We, this takes away all pride from us, Lord. We are humble people. May we go in humility and may we not spite those, may we not hate those, may we not ridicule those who are against you, but may we go with the good news because this is their only opportunity, their only time, Lord. I pray that what we have heard today, we will not keep it to ourselves. May we not be stingy with the gospel. May we not be shy or afraid or timid. But Father, may we go forth in boldness. May we just not be able to stay quiet. I pray this for our people, Lord. Your people, as we go forward, empower us with the Holy Spirit all across this land in which you have planted us here. May we speak the gospel this week. God, if we're faithful to do that, numerous people all around will be speaking of Jesus this week. God, move in power. God, save many. We're your ambassadors. We ask your blessings in Jesus' name. Amen.